Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We're so glad you're here. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. For 2023, we're embarking on the Year of Our Lord, a user's guide to and through the Scriptures. So grab your Bible and join us as we journey through the Bible. We are in hour 10 of our journey through the Bible together as we're trying to supplement your all's reading in going through the Bible as a church in a year. And as always, before we delve into God's Word, we always want to do so in a, series, in a season of prayer. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, help us now to, uh, to draw encouragement from your Word, and we thank you for your servants who are willing to take up the underpinnings of the ministry to ensure that your word does reach a public that, that desperately is in need of your wisdom and your guidance. So help us now, Lord, through the power of your spirit to understand these writings and not only to see your people of old, but to help us learn as the people of today from their lessons that we might better represent you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we are beginning our look at the books of history, the historical books starting with the book of Joshua, which runs all the way through 2 Chronicles. A lot of these, the series of couplets in the middle, Samuel's, Kings, and Chronicles, a lot of them actually overlap. So as we get into the, the, those historical books, a lot of what we talk about uh, regarding the kings in those eras, as well as the prophets who were in service at that time, a lot of it will overlap. But today we focus on a book with a singular narrative, the conquest of the land. So as we're going together to the Jordan River, the Jordan River, at this point in time, Moses already held a large campaign of driving out the Canaanites in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And during his time with them in that military capacity, he was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, what we now call the Transjordan region. So this, just by way of review to recap where we are, the family of Abraham in Genesis is ordained as the carriers of the faith and given Canaan as a promised inheritance. The line of Israel from the descendants of Abraham is chosen to become a kingdom of priests before a world that denies God. That's why they're set apart in their law as being different from the rest of the kingdoms around them and different from among the nations of the world. The family then enters Egypt to escape a famine in Canaan. The people multiply and unfortunately become enslaved for a period of about 400 years. God then calls Moses as both a prophet and the lawgiver over Israel. Egypt is judged through the series of plagues and as well as through the hobbling of their military. A lot of us forget as we study the book of Exodus that this giant proud nation was militarily crippled at the Red Sea. So they lost their imperial status of a while, and it would take generations before they would recuperate. Egypt was judged again by God, and Israel is released as a nation. The Torah, the law, and the teachings are given at Mount Sinai. The elders from the tribes at a place called Kadesh Barnea were sent into the Canaan to scout the place out, and they saw what they described as giants in the land. And they came back and chose a fear of the Canaanites instead of having faith in the promises of the God of Israel. So Israel from that point at Kadesh Barnea was cursed to wander the wilderness for 40 years as that generation passes away. Only Caleb and Joshua 
survived the 40-year wanderings. Unfortunately, at the end of that 40 years, Moses disobeys a prophetic message from God and is consigned to death. Joshua is anointed the leader of Israel as they enter into the land of promise. Moses, as we read last Wednesday, gives his final instructions before his passing, which is recorded for us, thankfully, in the book of Deuteronomy. And then Moses dies at Pisgah and is buried by God in a place that to this day no one knows. Unfortunately, the area they're going to go into, they'll take residence in a city called Gilgal, which is just to the south of the fortress city of Jericho. Now, these are the Canaanite nations, most of them city-states with large outlying areas and villages surrounding them. When we think of nations, we usually think of large swaths of land. Palestine by itself is an area that is just little over the size of New Jersey. So you have this collection of city-states which are in the land that was promised by God to Abraham's descendants. So the book of Joshua can be divided into four segments. And as we're going through it, I want you to take a look for prophetic reflections of the book of Revelation. So in the beginning, we have the return of the people of God to the land. We have them overcoming the occupiers. We have them reordering and organizing what will become the kingdom of Israel. And we have the final instructions given by Joshua before the record of his death. Now, that outline should actually remind you of the second part of the book of Revelation, everything past the seven churches, the return to the land, the overcoming the occupiers or the usurpers, the organizing of a new kingdom, and then in the case of Revelation, final instructions given by John to the believers of his day. So the promised land, according to the record of the book of Exodus, was actually supposed to stretch from the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea, from the desert of Egypt to the Euphrates. Now, when some people talk about Israel extending to the West Bank, if we take a look at the record of Exodus, we need to ask what river. This has not yet come to pass. But according to Exodus, the voice of God proclaimed that the nation of Israel's influence and governance would extend all the way to the Euphrates. As of this point in time, it has not accumulated that much territory, but it will. Part of the land had already been held or purchased prior to the sojourn in Egypt. Machpelah, the Oaks of Mamre, Hebron, the Hills of Bethel, and the Valley of Greer, all of that were either camped on or purchased by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Previous alliances also, for example, Salem through the King Melchizedek, those previous alliances built around Abraham and his family had either been forgotten or betrayed by this point in time. Pagan Canaanite and religion and culture was also supposed to be judged by God. Israel being the tool of his judgment. For instance, it is well known that they participate in a very horrific form of idol worship. One, it was their religion and their culture instituted sexual immorality. Not just promiscuity, mind you, but pagan practices that involved delving sexual immorality into their very ritual. They were also participants in child sacrifice. One of the most heart-wrenching things to read about in this culture is the taking of infants and putting them to death on blazing hot bronze idols. God also explains in the book of Exodus, and we'll cover that in just a second, that a cross-cultural engagement or entanglement between the Canaanites currently in their land and Israel would result in the Israelis 
their, their covenantal relationship with God being strained. It also might be that um, one of the reasons that God requested or told, rather ordered the Israelites to drive them out had to do with an intermingling or an intermarrying uh, and, and they're still participating in their old idol worship resulting in something that would contaminate or disrupt the plan of salvation. Remember, God's plan is perfectly established. There is no plan B. The coming of the Messiah had no alternate plan to it. The God that can see past, present, and future simultaneously knew through the outside of eternity that something about the people in the land, on top of their immorality and disregard for human life, something about them would cost Israel its relationship with God. The Canaanites were also to be judged. They had reached the limit of God's patience, and they were to be judged for their wickedness. Many Canaanite cities were not cities as we think of cities, as urban centers. They were effectively military strongholds, especially when we take a look at the city of Jericho, the city of Ai. Here's God's explanation from Exodus 23. In verse 32, he instructs, you must not make a covenant with them or their gods. They must not remain in the land or else they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will be a snare for you. There is something about the sensuality and the temptation built into their religious system and their culture that would ensnare the people of Israel. Something else that we need to mention, because of, of a relationship with Abraham and his descendants that were not through the line of Isaac, some of their inhabitants were protected scripturally in Deuteronomy chapter 2. There were also rules of engagement established within the scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 20, if you will, a early historic version of the Geneva Convention. Rules of engagement were already set down in Torah. Terms for peace, terms of surrender were always supposed to be offered, but they were typically rejected. In chapter 10, there is a whole series of cities that fall where it says, where the Word of God tells us that the people of the land or the soldiers of the land had been wiped out. But then you read back in chapter 15, that in those very cities, there are Canaanite survivors dwelling in those cities. Part of the terms of peace, as we hear regarding um, Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, includes the fact that they have the ability to turn away from their gods and turn to God. One of the things that I think is a misconception uh, today when we talk about Rahab being in the line of Christ, Ruth being in the light of Christ, we consider them outsiders or aliens of Israel that intermarry into the family that produces David, that produces Jesus. But that's incorrect because before they become married, before they get involved with the men that carry that line, they cease to be part of their old culture and they become Jews. In the case of the book of Ruth, your people shall become my people, your God shall what? Become my God. So they were able to be proselytized. They were able to come into the people of Israel. Terms were able to be offered, but they had to become part of the covenant people. They had to turn their backs on their old gods and accept the true and living God. They were able to repent, in other words, as we could put it in Christian terms. So there's a thread of grace that always runs through the Word of God, even in the Old Testament. Anyway, moving on. Strip, scriptures also through Exodus and Deuteronomy emphasize not necessarily to exterminate, but to drive out the people of the land. A very strange thing happens 
on the way to Jericho. When they cross the River Jordan, when they come up to cross the River Jordan, the Levites lead the procession in their arms, they're carrying poles that are that is suspending the Ark of the Covenant, and in an echo of the Exodus events, remember, this is a brand new generation of people. They weren't there when the Red Sea parted. They weren't there in Egypt. Those people had died out with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. So as the Ark of the Covenant approaches the River Jordan, the River Jordan parts and they walk into the West on dry ground. So the people of God, this new generation of Israelites, see the Exodus replayed in their mind. And they take 12 stones and create a memorial memorial column. They raise an Ebenezer at a place that would become to be known as Bethabara, which literally translates as house of passage. Now, there are a couple of places where Bethabara is mentioned in the New Testament. One is that this is the place where John the Baptist was baptizing. John chapter 1, verse 28. Something else is that uh, at Bethabara, it is pointed to the Pharisees that if God wanted to, uh, children of Abraham wasn't, that, wasn't necessarily uh, what the genetics of somebody isn't what made them saved. If God wanted to, he could raise children of Abraham from these stones. There is a definite possibility at Bethabara that these were the stones that was being pointed to. Before they crossed in, there was also a call of obe- to obedience and re- rededication by Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Turn neither from the right nor from the left. And uh, there is the challenge. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Rededication and renewal. It's amazing how those are the, the key ingredients to revival, even here in the Old Testament. Something interesting, they also celebrate Passover in Gilgal. They remember the event that brought them back to the land of promise in the first place. They celebrate it. And they also participate in circumcision, which is interesting. These are are Jewish people who are supposed to be circumcised just days after a new child is born. And yet a whole generation came about that didn't embrace this part of the covenant. So here they were circumcised in the land. It's also interesting to note that at this point in time, the manna ceases. From this point forward, they have to live off of the land, a land that they were told was flowing with milk and honey. This is a prelude to the Feast of First Fruits, the feast that happens on the day after Sabbath following Pentecost, when the land comes back to life. Guess what day we accidentally mislabel as Easter? And this all happened as they were in Gilgal on their approach to the fortress city of Jericho. Jericho, which was more of, again, it's more of a military installation that we're going to see in just a second than it is a true metropolitan center. During this time, as they were preparing to advance, while Joshua was effectively uh, standing sentry and run the camp of Israel, someone who identifies themselves as the captain of the Lord's host appears. And Joshua asks, who are you for, us or our enemies? Now, what's interesting to note here is that we think of, of captain as a field officer in a military, as a leader of a squadron. But in this particular instance, he's talking about, no, this is the commander of all of the forces, the Lord of angel armies. 
Joshua asks him to identify himself. And this figure tells him, take your shoes off of your feet, for you're standing on holy ground. And at that instant, Joshua knows exactly who he's talking to. No angel commands to be worshipped. Write that down. In the full counsel of God's scripture, no angel accepts worship. Anytime, especially in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, we hear instances where the writer of the book falls with his face to the ground before the angel, and the angel basically tells them to get up. Do not offer me the same reverence you should reserve for God. There is only one angel in all of the record of Scripture who accepted worship from human beings, and it didn't work out too well for him. So the question arises, who was it that really fought and won the Battle of Jericho? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second, but uh, if you want to take down for your notes and run over really quickly in the Cliff's Notes version for your answer, check out Zechariah 14.3. But this is Jericho as it was in the day. Now we talk about the, the wall of Jericho. But the wall of Jericho was not a single structure, but it was actually a multiple structures. There were two wall works surrounded the city. And they were reinforced with an earthen barrier in the middle. To this day, excavators have found the evidence tracing around the city of Jericho of this fortification. This is why it was such a big deal. You didn't, technically speaking, you weren't talking about a wall, you were talking about a wall with a bunch of paraffins around it, followed by a bunch of dirt ground in, followed by another wall with more paraffins about it. You didn't have a city, you had a fortress. How in the world are you supposed to take down this thing? And I really wish that I could overhear the conversation that Joshua has with his generals as he's trying to unveil God's plan for them. Now, if you think about the military mindset for a second, Joshua, who is fulfilling a prophetic role here, would have to come to his, his generals and say, basically, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do, boys. We're going to go around and march around the city once a day for six days silently. And then on day seven, we're going to march around seven times. Then when I give the signal, we're still going to be silent. We're still going to be silent. And then when I give the signal... We're going to blow our trumpets, scream, and the walls are going to come down for us. You could almost hear the cogs turning that the old boys lost it. But nevertheless, they were obedient. Jericho itself. Jericho uh, derives from the Canaanite word yarch, which roughly translates to moon. And it was a center of a very popular moon god, Yarich. In the area, there's actually a city to the south and east called Ben Yarich, House of the Moon God. Anyway, two spies were sent in. Now, as we're talking about the parallels between Joshua and the book of Revelation, I want you to notice that the spies that were sent into Jericho didn't do a whole lot of reconnaissance or actual spy work. What they did actually do was lead to the conversion by their own witness of the least likely of all people in that fortress city. Their intervention led to the conversion of Rahab, who was an ancestor of Boaz, who himself was an ancestor of King David, and by extension, our Savior. So she accepts both Israel and God. She is no longer 
a citizen of Jericho. She is now a citizen of Israel. The plan of attack again. We walk around the walls once a day for six days in silence. We march seven times around on the seventh day. And then on the seventh time, we blow trumpets, we scream our heads off, and the walls come tumbling down. We're also ordered to take no spoils, take no treasure, or any accursed thing. So this place was guilty of such heinous sin that even the gold within its walls were considered cursed. After Jericho, the Israelites are really feeling good about themselves. If there is a prophetic message we can get from AI, it is overconfidence in the self versus reliance on God. Israel is defeated for the first and only time in its campaign, the loss of 36 soldiers. Now, later on, Joshua in mourning falls upon his face, and God tells him to get up. There's a, an unrepentant sin in the camp that you have to deal with. A person by the name of Achan from Jericho had smuggled detestable things and kept them for himself out of greed. He and his family are executed because of it. And after the sin has been purged, Israel returns to Ai. Another battle is commenced. This time, Joshua leads a main force of over 30,000 soldiers, and he sends around behind the fortress 5,000 people. Now on the other side of the river, Joshua's force, his main body, lures out Ai's soldiers. The 5,000 uh, strong ambush force enters into the city and takes it. They surround and they take out the remaining Canaanite army. To the south and west, there's a city named Jebus. This was the capital of the Jebusites. This city was formerly Salem, in Genesis, the kingdom of Melchizedek. Now Jebus will eventually, it will remain in Jebusite hands off again and on again, through the book of the Judges. In fact, it's still called Jebus at the, during the time of David when it is finally conquered and renamed once and for all Jerusalem, which translates to New Salem or a new peace. As they're finishing up their southern campaign, the city of Gibbon uh, decides that through deception, they want to lure Israel into a peace treaty. They accept terms under false pretenses. And even though their deception is revealed Joshua still accepts and honors their treaty to become kind of like a servant class to Israel. The defection of the Gibeonites results in retaliation. Five neighboring city-states join forces together under the king of Jebus at this time, a gentleman by the name of Adonai Zedek. That name incidentally means, if you want to write this down, Lord of Righteousness. That's another parallel with, with Revelation. Someone in Jerusalem raises up their own banner as a god. Five nations join forces and confederate together, and they attack the Jebusites. So Joshua, honoring his agreement, comes back in force to rescue and to battle them, and the battle results and, and, and drives not only the people, the attacking forces out of Gibeon, but they run south to a place called uh, Beth Horam. And during that flight, God sends what in the scriptures refers to as hail of fire, stones of fire from heaven. During the time, Joshua actually asks God to maintain some light in the sky, give them a longer day so that they can finish up the battle, and God does it. After the, uh, the near extermination of the Canaanite army, the remaining kings of the area 
run into a cave and hide. They're later captured and executed. This concludes the wrap-up of the southern campaign. From this point on, there are only outlying camps remaining for Israel to offer terms to or to drive out. The northern campaign is detailed in brief in chapter 11. King Jabin of Hazar amasses a large army against Israel. But through almost storm tactics, Israel speedily advances through the north. And even though the cities fall, there is a resulting guerrilla war that ends up uh, taking out pockets of resistance that still remain. So in seven years, Joshua finishes conquering the land of promise, an astonishing lightning pace. Once the land is is firmly under Israel's control, the tribes are basically given state possessions of their own, allocated by lots. The casting of holy lots, the umam and the thuman, the, the, um, the practice of asking God to reveal himself through the markings. Each tribe basically gets its own state. And Israel enters a time during what we call the book of the judges where they are more or less a confederation of states, each under the eldership of a particular tribe with the people of the tribe of Levi scattered all throughout the nation. Remember, the the Levites did not get their own allotment of land. They instead got a collection of cities scattered throughout Israel so they could remain the teachers of Israel. God himself said that he would be their inheritance. So the tribes were allocated portions by the casting of holy lots. They were then, on top of that, once the state boundaries were established, farms and, and farming communities were then assigned to clans and families. Now, according to the law, if you had more land than you needed for a time, you could lease out the use of some of that land, but you could never permanently sell off land that was given to you. The land that was given to your family was supposed to be maintained in your family perpetually. You could effectively lease it off, but you could never really sell it. Every year of Jubilee, every inch of land of Israel that had once been quote-unquote sold or leased in this case, had to be returned to its originally designated family. Now, when it comes to the time of the kings, what, will really, uh, what you would really need to know is that Ephraim and Manasseh remain very strong figures up north. Judah remains the strongest of the south. In fact, it splits off and becomes its own nation. The southern kingdom remains loyal to the the line of David. The northern kingdom actually goes through a succession, a rapid succession, I might add, of different dynasties. But this is the original allocation of the tribes. Dan eventually gets split up. Uh, He takes some territory that's next to the Philistines, and he's unable to militarily hold on to it, so he ends up Uh, running away to the north. Also, Dan, if I remember correctly, is the first tribe to fall to idolatry, and they get struck out of the record as we approach the book of Revelation. Stricken from the record, excuse me. So the Levites were assigned 48 Levitical cities scattered throughout Israel. Six of these were designated as cities of refuge. Now, for those of us who are New Testament Christians, This is an Old Testament revelation of a New Testament theology. Please pay attention to this. The cities of refuge were available to any Israelite who was a participant in what we could call an accidental death, not premeditated murder, 
But if you were working with somebody else and say you were chopping down a tree and the axe head of your axe flew off and caved in someone's skull, I hate to put it that way, but it was an accident. Nevertheless, there was a person who was a part of that person's family called the Goel, the next of kin or the kinsman redeemer in this version, the avenger of blood, whose job it was to seek justice on behalf of the family. You killed somebody in their family, so they had the right to hunt you down and stone you. If it was for something involving accidental death, you had the right to flee to one of the cities of refuge. And after you pled your case at the city gates, you were harbored, you received sanctuary inside the gates of one of those cities until the time that the serving high priest died. Hear me when I say that. You have blood on your hands. You seek sanctuary for the death penalty. You find a place set aside by God for refuge. And, because, and at the death of the high priest, that sin, that terminal sin, is wiped away. Please tell me that sounds familiar to you. It's an Old Testament shadow of a New Testament reality. So here are the cities of refuge, one for every two tribes scattered throughout Israel so that you were never very far away from one. There was also this peculiar bit of Old Testament law that you really need to put a pin in when we study the personhood of Christ. The daughters of Zilphahad, in the book of Numbers, they asked for an exception to the inheritance laws because their father only had daughters. And uh, Moses did what he was supposed to do. Instead of making a ruling under his own wisdom, he went to God and asked God for counsel. And God gave him this exemption. If you're in an all-daughter family and they still marry within the tribe, the husband that they marry is counted as an adopted son. And so the inheritance goes through them accordingly. The reason that this is important is in how Jesus inherits the throne of David. We'll get into more of that in a little bit. But there are two different genealogies given to you in the New Testament. One in Matthew, one in Luke. One is by his father David, or his father Joseph rather. The other one is through Mary's father after having to, married into a family with only one daughter. One of the lines, the line that Joseph originally was in, was cursed, had a blood curse on his head. But because of his marriage, because of Joseph's marriage to Mary, Jesus' inheritance of the throne of David is actually clear. This is an Old Testament exemption with, a New Testament, with massive New Testament ramifications. At the conclusion of the book before his death, Joshua gives final instructions to the people of Israel where he repeats, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In chapters 23 and 24, you can boil them down to turn from the gods of the Canaanites and never serve them. Be faithful to your covenant with the God of Israel. Thankfully embrace his blessings because you will be blessed. But if you turn away from him, then Israel will endure judgment if, he's un, if you are unfaithful. Again, what he's trying to map out here for them, especially through the example of Rahab, 
is that it's not in your genetics. What saves you, what makes you unique, is not your genetics. It's not racial, it's not ethnic. What makes you really blessed is your adherence as a covenant people under God. For us as Christians, that has a profound meaning because it tells us that the God of the Old Testament is still the God of the New Testament, that there is no deviation in God's plan, that just as he would have welcomed the foreigner into the family of God if they just choose to convert from their old self and their own God, old gods to him, understanding that he's the one true God and accepting that covenant, he still has the same thing today, where it is through repentance and through the acceptance of a sacrifice given on our behalf that we are no longer the person that we were, no longer in the trajectory of condemnation because of a worship of the self, but instead, once we come to God, once we forfeit our sin, then we become the new covenant people that Jesus gave himself for us to be. There is a thread of grace from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And my hope as you're doing your Bible readings and as we're continuing in this study is that you recognize that there is the grace of God on every page. Even in these circumstances, this is, is one time where God intervenes in a particular unique point in history to use the people of God for severe judgment. But even there, there was still the opportunity for grace. So a couple of things that I want you to take back as parallels between this book and the book of Revelation. First of all, in the name itself, Yehoshua, the name Joshua, is actually a forerunner in Aramaic of the name Yeshua, the Aramaic name of Jesus, both of which have the same meaning, which is Savior, for he will save the people from their sins. Both books talk about a war to dispossess the usurpers. Both involve a seven-year campaign. Both include the sending of two witnesses in a final effort for conversion. There are trumpet events in both announcing the judgment of God. There is an international coalition formed against the people of God. There is someone claiming to be God who sets himself up as a God in the city that would come to be Jerusalem. His name Adonai Zedek, again meaning Lord of Righteousness. The defeat comes in the fire in the form of hail from heaven. There are signs of God's involvement regarding that come to us through something affecting the moon and the stars. The rulers hide in caves in the book of Revelation. They call out while they're in caves for the very rocks to come and smash them because they are so fearful of God. So, for next week, make sure that you're still meeting with your groups and still spending time together both in fellowship and in instruction. Share your readings and your journal highlights. But along with them, I entreat you to, as, as topics of discussion, consider, is human nature inherently good? The book of Judges, it's all about human nature. In fact, one of the signature sentences in that book is, when there was no God in Israel, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So I want you to reflect on that question. Is human nature inherently good? What happens to a life that is spent away from God or that drifts away from God? What happens to a life that is spent either completely away from God or that drifts away from God? 
And what happens when we choose to ignore God in our lives? Hopefully that will give you a lot to consider. I'm trying to stretch you into spiritual growth through these considerations. Not so that you don't just get facts and figures out of this and answer historical curiosities, but that you also find the spiritual truth within it. The book of Joshua is about spiritual faithfulness and the blessings of the people of God to overcome any challenge that they might be presented with if they're not reliant upon themselves, but wholly reliant upon God. The books of Judges and Ruth, on the other hand, deal with human nature and deal with what happens when we do things in our own eyes instead of relying on the wisdom of our very holy, very omniscient, and very powerful God. So, with all that being said, let's bow our hearts as we conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. May it find harbor within all of our hearts. May you bless us as we, as we, as we come to you by being convicted for the times that we were not the people that you've called us to be the people that you've created us and redeemed us to be. As Joshua did, may we turn from the idols of self and sin and turn with everything that we are to you to be cleansed of all unrighteousness so that we might serve you with everything that we are, that we might love you with everything that we are, and that others may see you well represented in everything that we do, that we say, that we even think. So we dedicate this time and ourselves into your hands. Please bless us for these efforts that we may grow and that your kingdom may grow, and that you may be glorified. In the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.